Well, it is my uh, intent this morning to begin a series. If you give me just a moment here. In about the last quarter or so of the book of Genesis, uh, specifically uh, regarding the life of Joseph, and I think this is going to be very encouraging to us and very enlightening, uh, I want to read a few more passages, a couple of passages before that. I think they're probably queued up there on the cards. I want to begin in Genesis 12, read verses 1 through 7, jump into a couple of verses in a few verses in chapter 15, and then on to chapter 37, where we'll begin. So chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, to begin. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. And the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then flip over to verses 1 through 6 of Chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And now in chapter 37. Just verses 1 through 3, just really introducing this this morning. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, your word is truth. Sanctify us by your word. Let it dwell in our hearts. Let it be our treasure, the bread upon which we 
we feed our meat and our drink. Let us do Your will, O God. Let us be not just hearers only, but doers of Your Word. Let us receive this with thanksgiving, for You are good, and You give to us Yourself even in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you see where the story of Joseph begins here in chapter 37, but it really doesn't begin at chapter 37. It begins prior to that. It actually begins a long time prior to that. It began in the eternal counsel of God's will to have a people for Himself and to have a kingdom for His own glory. Uh, These chapters concerning Joseph set up the exodus because it's Joseph who brings his family into Egypt, Jacob's family, or Israel, uh, setting up that great redemptive exodus several hundred years later when Yahweh delivered His people from His and their enemies with that mighty arm and that outstretched, uh, that mighty hand, that outstretched arm, because He was determined He would make them His family, His holy nation, those people among whom He Himself would dwell. And so when we correctly read the Old Testament and Old Testament history in particular, we need to understand it. We need to read it as as God revealing something about His redemptive plan, His plan to redeem His own people through His Son. In other words, the Old Testament is God's revelation about His redemptive plan just as much as the New Testament is. Okay, The entire Bible is one unified revelation of divine redemption that finds its fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to do a quick survey, if you don't mind, because that the promise, the first promise of redemption, you've heard it probably, what, one or two thousand times? goes all the way back to near the beginning of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you know it well, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, you know that following the, the fall, the, the sin of Adam and Eve, God cast them out of the garden. They were removed from His presence, from His dwelling place. And following that, the family multiplied, and they spread over all the earth, and they became very wicked. And so God determined that He was going to destroy the world. Except, of course, Noah and his family. And following the flood, again, we're doing a quick survey of many, many years and many events. But following the flood, Noah's sons uh, were fruitful and multiplied. And that family became the nations. You can see that in chapter 10, verse 32. But now you know the nations allied themselves. They came together and allied themselves against God in rebellion at Babel. And so God rejected the nations, but that's chapter 11. In the very next chapter, we, we read it a moment ago, God chose one man, again, not Adam, but Abraham. And he would be the father of many nations, which is almost humorous at the time because he had no children. He said, wait a minute, Lord, my heir is my servant. Not to be, okay? And he was given a promise. We read it earlier And then in chapter 15, with Abraham's 
questioning, his concern perhaps, God gives him this incredible sign of the fire passing through the middle of the, the dead animal bodies, right, to let Abram know. Abram was familiar with this old covenant ceremony that God was promising himself unto death, that he would, in fact, fulfill his promise. And the Lord then reveals that Abraham's descendants will be sojourners in a land not theirs. They will dwell in a land that's not theirs, and they will be afflicted there for 400 years. Then he says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Of course, that's the exodus, okay? Now, Abraham and Sarah gave birth to the promised son Isaac, of course, and God said of him, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Okay, that's Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah had twin boys, Jacob and Esau, and God said of them, the older Esau, twins, but there's a birth order, of course, as you know, and Esau, who came first, he would serve the younger. That's not the way it normally would be. But Jacob was going to be the superior over Esau, okay? And then God repeats his promise to Jacob, renewing the covenant in chapter 35, verses 11 and 12, where he said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now, years before that, Jacob had to suddenly leave his father's home. You'll remember this, of course, I'm sure. And he had to flee for his life away from, of all people, his brother Esau, who had, who had deeply offended because he, in Esau's mind, stole his blessing through deception and, and trickery. Well, when Rebekah, Jacob's uh, mother, heard the report that Esau was planning on, on killing his own brother, well, Rebekah took things in her own hand, and she said, I'm going to send him away to, to my brother Laban, and he will dwell there while he be safe away from his own brother. And his, or her reason for that was, well, he needs to take a wife from among his own people, not from the ungodly Canaanites like Esau did. And that's exactly what he did, of course. Before he even arrived at Laban's home, he happened to, upon Laban's very beautiful daughter, Rachel, and in this, uh, have you read the story? I'm sure you have. This romantic sort of made for Hollywood, love at first sight, gushing romance, okay? He was instantly smitten with Rachel. And he promised Rachel's father that he would give him seven years of work for his daughter. So fathers, you know, when, you, when you're, someone comes looking for your daughter, there you go, seven years. It's right there in the Bible, okay? Well, when he completed those years, he was given Rachel's sister Leah instead. And the deceiver was himself deceived, right? Don't we say what goes around comes around, right? The deceiver was deceived. Well, that's okay. He'd work another seven years for Rachel. And so after 14 years, he had two wives. And therein lies his problem because the two sisters shared one husband and they were now competitors for their man's love. Well, this is the background to what we'll read when we come to 
the, the life of, of Joseph, um, this rivalry between Leah and Rachel. Well, so the main contest, I'm not sure this happens anymore in our modern days, but the main contest between Leah and Rachel was the bearing of children. Now, it's a contest in which Leah quickly took the lead because she gave birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So Rachel was now becoming desperate because she was barren. She had not been able to conceive a child. And so she says, I know what I'm going to do. I'll give my husband my maidservant. And she did. And she, Bilhah, bore two sons, Dan and Naphtali. And Leah thought, okay, well, my fertility seems to be a bit on the decline, so I know what I'll do. I can do that too. You know, you raise two, I'll raise you three. And so she did the same thing, and to, and to Zilpah was born, born Gad and Asher. And after that, uh, Leah's womb was open again, and she bore Issachar and Zebulun. So the, the score in this competition was now six to zero, or if you want to count the maidservants, eight to two. Okay, so Leah was winning. But, but, Genesis 30, verse 22. This is covenant language. Then God remembered Rachel. It's not like God suddenly figured out, oh, I remember that woman, Rachel. No, God was about to act according to his covenant promise. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph. So Rachel finally had a son, our good friend Joseph, okay? Jumping ahead several chapters, you remember that Jacob decided to leave, and he took all of his family, all that he owned, and left Laban to return to his father. But before they arrived there, Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, her second son, but of course something went terribly, terribly wrong in those days of labor and delivery, and Benjamin survived, but she died. So Jacob had 12 sons from four different women. Now, in case this isn't real obvious, I want to tell the young men in our congregation that that's not a good plan. Don't go there, okay? Just saying. And so the competition between, ja- between Leah and Rachel was going to be uh, it was over, but it's going to be continued in their sons. And so Jacob's family became known or became noted for its jealousy and envy and, and pride and, and malice. Although Joseph was, generally speaking, and, and we'll see this, I trust, uh, something of a, of a fairly godly young man, he was also not immune from the pride and jealousy that marked his family. And he himself contributed to that animosity, which I, I think we may be able to see next week. So that brings us to chapter 37 after that quick survey. And I want you to notice verse 2 where Moses records, these are the generations of Jacob. This is the phrase that Moses uses to mark the divisions in the book of Genesis. You'll see that, I forget, six or eight times. So we know that Moses is starting a new section of his book, okay? The period concerning Jacob is mostly over. Jacob remains obviously in play as a character in the years of Joseph, but uh, more of a minor role, I suppose, but yet very important. 
And the story of Jacob is going to comprise all the rest, except for chapter 38, all the rest of, of the book of Genesis, which might surprise, it would surprise me if I didn't know it, uh, because that's about as much material as Moses devotes to Abraham, um, which is perhaps a bit surprising, okay? Obviously, Moses thinks Joseph is important, but why? I would think that based upon this, that the Christ would come from Joseph. Not the case, of course, and we'll get to that eventually. Jesus, the Christ, comes from Judah. So why is Joseph so important? Why does Moses devote so many chapters, I believe 13, to Joseph? Well, let me give you a number of reasons why I think so anyway. Because to begin with, he is the one man who saves Jacob's family, or who saves Israel from death by starvation. So in a sense, in a real sense, Joseph is the savior of Abraham's family, okay? He keeps Israel's hope alive by preserving the line of the Christ, okay? If Jacob's family would die out, there could be no Christ. Furthermore, he is the reason Israel ends up in Egypt, right? Which sets the stage for the Exodus. In other words, the story of Joseph explains, Pastor Ben, remember he started in Exodus some many months ago now, it explains how did Israel, how did Jacob's family get to Egypt to begin with, okay? It explains that. And it's also in Egypt that the family of Jacob, remember there are 70 that go down there, but during those 400 years they become this vast nation, which will then be assembled in God's site sometime later on at Sinai, okay? So they are going to leave Egypt and re-enter Canaan, but no longer as expatriates, now as owners, so to speak, as those who would possess the land, okay? The third reason why Joseph is important, I think, is because his life is prophetic of the Christ who is to come. Consider these facts. I'm just going to give you a few of them, ways in which Joseph prophesies, or so to speak, his life prophesies, his circumstances are prophetic of the life of the Christ who would come many years later, okay? Joseph was born of a woman who prior to that conception could not have children until what? Until God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. So both Jesus and Joseph were born of miraculous conceptions, Although, of course, Jesus was the greater because he was born of a virginal conception. But nevertheless, uh, both women uh, could not or would not have children prior to that miraculous conception. Another reason is Joseph was, well, he was the beloved son of his father. Okay? We even read that. Jacob loved Joseph the best. And Jesus was, of course, the beloved son of his father. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Also, he was persecuted, Joseph was, uh, and hated by his brothers. By whom? The sons of Israel, as Jesus was hated by the sons of Israel. Joseph was betrayed for silver coins, as Jesus was. Joseph was banished from the covenant community that he might save the covenant community, as Jesus was put out of Jerusalem, that he might save Jerusalem, that he might save the people of God, okay? Joseph knew intense humiliation and suffering, as Jesus would. Joseph was in prison 
with two other accused men as Jesus was hung on the cross between two men. All right? And one of those was given life, eternal life, let's say, not physical life, and the other one died eternally as well. He was also exalted as ruler over Egypt. But more importantly, he was the one, Joseph was, who came to be ruler over his brothers, ruler over Israel, so to speak. Might even, he might even call him king of the Jews, figuratively. Okay? Joseph was tempted. He was tempted by Potiphar's wife. We'll get to that eventually. Uh, but he resisted temptation. He was faithful. He did not give in. He did not submit to that temptation. He obeyed God as, of course, Jesus would many years later. Joseph saved Israel from death and gave them a place to live, foreshadowing uh, Jesus saving his people. And ultimately, what would he say? I go to prepare a place for you. And perhaps most significantly, Joseph is the one who brings his family together in unity, which is exactly what God is doing redemptively in Jesus Christ. God is gathering all of his scattered people around the globe in distant lands, and he's bringing them all together into one people, one church, one body. Paul mentions that in Ephesians 2. I'm sure you know this text very well. If I can flip there for just a moment. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Then one other place I want to look is John 17, our Lord's high priestly prayer. And picking up toward the end, he says, Do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent them and have loved them, even as you loved me. So I gave you a number of reasons why Joseph looks forward to the Christ. But this is not exhaustive, I don't think. These are some of the main ones that I have found. But A.W. Pink, an author I'm sure you know, uh, he, believes he, he believed that he found 101 similar parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Well, okay, so we're, we're going back to why is Joseph important? Why are we going to spend some time looking at this life, besides the fact that it's the Word of God? Well, there's a fourth reason. The, the life of Joseph, I believe, is very relevant to us all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years later because we also want to be godly men and women and teenagers, by the way, because Joseph was how old? 
17. Okay, he was just a teenager. So we want to also live as godly people uh, in the face of sin and temptation and opposition and affliction. So Joseph not just reveals something about the Christ, he also serves as an example, something of a, even a role model, if you will, for us who face similar struggles, maybe not similar, but also life's struggles and trials. As we discover in Joseph, his steadfast faith, ultimately, that leads eventually to triumph and vindication, he becomes an encouragement to us, okay, that we also must maintain steadfast faith in the Lord, no matter what we're facing. Joseph was in prison. Joseph was thrown away, taken away from his home, removed from his family, from his father whom he loved, okay? He was isolated from his people, and yet we can learn similarly things like to overcome envy and to face adversity and to resist the advances of uh, immoral and promiscuous people, to plan for the future, to forgive those who have wronged us, to have faith in God's promises, and to recognize that God is sovereign, directing our lives even when you're prone to despair, no matter what. Well, there's a fifth reason as well why I think the story of Joseph is very meaningful to us, and it's that thing. We can learn to not lose hope and not despair when there seems to be every reason to do so. And I believe you faced circumstances, every one of us have, where we have been tempted to just give up. You know what? It's not worth it, whatever it was. But Joseph helps us to remain, to maintain hope. You know, you face those depressing and dark circumstances. Some of you are right now, and you might ask, where is God? Why is this happening to me, you cry out? Am I being punished? Does God actually hate me? Where is God in all this? I'm sure you've thought those thoughts. I know I have. And the fact is, that which you have experienced, are experienced, or will experience, may truly be evil. Okay? What happened to Joseph was evil, but God had not abandoned him. In fact, it's amazing that as we read, we're going to find out that God is going to go to Egypt with Joseph. God's going to bless him in Egypt. God's going to be present with there for his triumph. So Joseph would say much later to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Today, not today, we only see, we are very limited. We have very limited vision. We see today. Okay, we can't even see tomorrow. We barely remember yesterday, all right? We are very limited. My family, years ago, Barbara will remember this, we visited some friends in, in Grand Junction, Colorado, and there are these high, not real high, but these beautiful mesas, and we took this long, Barbara will never forget, this curvy road that frightened some of the folks in our car, and uh, up to the top of this mesa, and we climbed up there, and we could see this vast vision, this vast view. You could see forever, it seems, okay? Okay. The fact is, normally we see very little, but God sees all things. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees yesterday. He sees tomorrow like it was yesterday. He sees all things because 
He has ordained all things. And so God has a good purpose even in the bad things that happen to us. Paul said, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we'll see that, I believe, over the course of this study. And we'll see that not only is Jacob's family saved, but Joseph's brothers will also be changed, okay? God is going to use Joseph, in a sense, the victim of his brother's animosity, to do good toward those very brothers. He overcomes evil with good. And in that way, he also is a type of Christ. Because Peter wrote of Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The evil was yours. Peter's clear, okay? But God ordained it for this amazing good that guilty sinners could be saved. So you may be suffering today in, in some small way or some large way. Most of the times I don't know. But God is at work through that suffering, through those struggles, through those trials to do good to you and perhaps to others. Have you ever dived off a, a platform in the lake when you're young? If you can remember, a 17-year-old, also 17-year-old girl, did that one time. Her name was Johnny Erickson. She did the same thing you and I do, but she hit the ground with her head and broke her neck and was paralyzed for life. Had God abandoned her? Was God punishing her? What was going on? Okay. No, God was preparing her for her life's calling. She would testify years later, years later, that she could not have become the woman and the believer she became if it were not for that wheelchair. Amazing. So in a sense, the worst thing that happened to her as a 17-year-old girl losing her ability to walk was the best thing that could ever happen to her. And think of all the people she impacted, hundreds and thousands. So God did tremendous good through that evil, okay? That's truly Christ-like. So by faith, we know that the sovereign God is directing our lives, the good things and the bad things. Give thanks for everything, Paul said, because Paul, God's using all these to bring about his good intents. I want to read... Spurgeon, as we come close to closing here, I love Charles Spurgeon. I call him my favorite Baptist. Upon some things a believer is absolutely sure. He knows, for instance, that God sits in the stern sheets of the vessel when it rocks most. He believes that an invisible hand is always on the world's tiller and that wherever providence may drift, Jehovah steers it. That reassuring knowledge prepares him for everything. He looks over the raging waters and sees the Spirit of Jesus treading the billows. And he hears a voice saying, It is I. Do not be afraid. He knows, too, that God is always wise. And knowing this, he is confident that there can be no accidents, no mistakes, that nothing can occur which ought not to arise. He could say, If I should lose all that I have, it's better that I should lose, better that I should lose than have, if God so wills. The worst calamity is the wisest and kindest thing that could befall me if God ordains it. Every event 
has yet worked out the most divinely blessed results. And so believing that God rules all, that he governs wisely, that he brings good out of evil, that believer, the believer's heart is assured and he is enabled calmly to meet each trial as it comes. The believer can, in the spirit of true resignation, pray, send me what you will, my God, so long as it comes from you. Never came there an ill portion from your table to any of your children. What comfort and peace does that give you? How does that send peace into your soul? It doesn't matter how you're struggling, financially, at work, with relationships, with your health, with uh, just the challenge of growing older. It doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit is involved in your life and He is sanctifying you, okay? Jess, this is the time for the slide. If it goes up there, I want to read two verses from hymn 94. I don't do this normally, but these are so good. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. So don't despair. The same God who is at work in Joseph's life is at work in yours and in mine. And as he turned evil to good, so that same gracious, sovereign God is turning the evil circumstances of your life and mine to good. To, to good. Again, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Let me continue on. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is the good that God is doing. He is conforming you to the image of His Son, sanctifying you, re removing sin from your heart, so to speak, changing your love. Okay, as Paul said, this slight Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond any comparison. Isn't that what's most important? Not that we have a comfortable, pain-free, trouble-free life, but that we become more like Jesus, prepared for heaven as mature believers. Isn't that what you want? I believe it is. I believe that's why you're here. And therefore, count it all joy. I love how Eric put this in his letter to us. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, so you know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's Joseph's journey. And it's ours too, because God appoints for us uh, these things that we might become holy disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Michael Card saying many years ago, there is joy in the journey even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death because what? The Lord is with us. Okay? 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall, let's finish it together, I shall what? Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Oh, Lord God, ah, what joy is ours in hearing your word. What joy is ours in knowing that you are the sovereign God of all things, directing our courses, directing our lives, even through horrible evil and afflictions and sufferings and trials. You are doing good to your people. You are making us more like Jesus, which is our first desire, to love you, to serve you, and to be like Jesus. Forgive us of our doubts. Deliver us from spare. Let us not be hopeless. Let us not sorrow as those who have no hope, because we who are in Christ have hope always. Praise you, Lord God. Amen.